That was Claudia Shurzenko singing Don't Talk About Love in 1940 and was re-recorded from an old Soviet record on a gramophone in the small town of Vilkova, located on the Ukrainian side of the Danube Delta. Hello and welcome. My name is Tristan Taylor, and along with Natalie Bertrams, a photographer, I went from my home in South Africa to Romania and Ukraine in June of 2021 to document the vanishing cultures of the Danube Delta, a fascinating, interesting, sometimes terribly tragic, sometimes beautiful place. I hope you enjoy the show. Lilia Olenik's song is an ode to Bessarabia, the historical name for the southern part of Ukraine. Today, most of Bessarabia is in the Odessa Oblast. The Black Sea is to the east, Romania to the south, and a bit of it is in Moldova to the west. The song highlights the diverse cultures of Bessarabia, which includes the Ukrainian section of the lower Danube Delta. Sung in Russian, a part of our song goes. Bessarabia, wherever life takes me, I will remember you just the same. My darling Bessarabia, I love your blooming gardens and songs with many sounds from many places. To hear Moldovan, Ukrainian, Bulgarian talk all together as a gift from God. Olenik is one of the 18,000 residents of the small Ukrainian city of Rene, where time moves slowly. The Soviet Union is still present, the ubiquitous ladders and drive communist apartment blocks, potholed streets under grey summer skies, small grocery stores with processed meat, instant coffee and cheap cigarettes. The Soviet port Rus and the boats plying the Danube River trade, goods moving back and forth from the Black Sea to Germany, don't stop anymore. 7,000 people used to work at the port. From its Black Forest headwaters in Germany and on its way to the Black Sea, the Danube River passes through Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade and Bratislava. At Rennes, the Danube branches out into three canals, fanning out into a vast wetland covering thousands of square kilometers. 87% of the delta is in Romania, the rest is in Ukraine, and the river divides the two countries. While the delta is Europe's most biodiverse region and UNESCO World Heritage Site, the delta's environment is not in great shape due to the exploitation of the past. Mikhailo Nesterenko of Rewilding Ukraine explained when I spoke to him at Kilometer Zero, where the Danube River meets the Black Sea. The major transformation happens in the 60s and 70s. After the war, the crisis was everywhere in Europe, and uh, there was food, uh, there was famine in some of the areas in our part of Europe, and we tried to use as much land as possible for agriculture. So large boulders were built along the Danube for agricultural production, for rice production, which is still widespread in uh, Ukraine. Um, some of the wetlands were turned into fish ponds for, for fish breeding. Uh, then later on, navigation came and many of the channels of the Danube have been straightened for the uh, ease uh, of navigation along the Danube. So there's been a lot of transformation and roughly uh, according to the International Convention for the Protection of River Danube, they say around 60% of the floodplain along the Danube has been modified, a bit less in the delta, but still, the scale is huge. I asked Nestorenko, 
What are the impacts of climate change on the Delta? Yeah, the impacts of climate change on, on the Delta, well, first of all, uh, there's, a lot, there's less and less uh, water in the Ukrainian part of the Delta. It's arguably climate change or management. I think it's a, it's, it's a very complex uh, uh, result of, of, of many things. Um, we see a lot of, um, let's say, the droughts and floods. The droughts and floods, they change their parts completely. Sometimes we have very big floods. I mean, the climate is not stable anymore. Sometimes it's very extreme flooding or very extreme drought. Very little things in between, which is quite disastrous for the delta. Uh, invasive species, this is another big issue. A lot of invasive species are coming with the, clim- the changing climates. They're advancing through uh, our economic and the transports. And they, they, they pose a problem for many of the animals and for the wildlife. Reni, about 110 kilometers or so from the Black Sea, is also the start of the unique cultural delta. Ethnic Russian, Ukrainian, Bulgarian, Gaguzian, Romanian, Moldovan, and Lipovan communities stretch across the region in cities, towns, and small villages. But these cultures are under threat, perhaps more so than the Delta's environment. Assimilation, globalization, changing economics, and much darker forces. And the first place to look for these vanishing cultures is where all the tourists go, Selina in Romania. Selina is often the start of a Delta holiday. From there, tourists can take small boats to see the Delta's canals, reeds, 312 species of birds, and visit small villages. Selina is not a big place, but it has a pretty boardwalk. As the day cools and sunset lights up the Danube, holiday makers walk up and down the boardwalk, a little over a kilometer long. Old Roma ladies hawk blankets, kids eat ice cream, and teenagers flirt. There's not too much else to do other than watch ocean-going ships steam up and down the Selina Canal. But sometimes, if the visitors are lucky, dancers spill out to the Greek club and perform. Ekaterina Vigogé Drakopoulou runs the club, teaching and keeping things together. Greeks first came to the mouth of the Delta in the 7th century BC, and during the 1800s, the dominant culture was Greek. In 1879, Greeks accounted for 57% of Selina's population, Romanians 5%. And they did like the other communities, the Italian community, the Armenian community. And they made and built schools and made the cinemas. There were several Greek schools, they built a church. So here was a prosperity period when the Greeks put on the imprint in their community. The Italians also did, so did the Turks. They did. Selina had a mask. Today, all the dancers are Romanian. The once strong Italian community has also disappeared from the town, partly to escape communism, partly for economic reasons. I spoke to Giovanni Lindi in Selina's small Catholic church. How many Italians are in the town? Only four. How many of them speak Italian? No, no. Forget. Selina has his own writer, Jean Bart, and his novel, Europolis, written in 1930, describes a very different Selina, back when it was a thriving international freeport under the control of the European Commission of the Danube, a kind of precursor to the European Union. He writes that... The entire population feeds from the port's life. 
Neither does it have anything in common with the rest of the country. Here's a colony life, a mixture of races, all nations, all types, and all languages. Then came the war. Soviet bombing destroyed 80% of Salina. The Danube Commission formally closed shop three years after the war. And that was it for Salina as an international port. I met 20-year-old Alexandra Manoli at Salina's graveyard, another reminder of what was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Greek, Ottoman, Jewish, English, Italian, and German graves. She lights candles at the graves of her ancestors. Okay, so how often do you come here to the graveyard? Uh, every year, like uh, in the summertime, like two or three times. And how do you pay your respects? Ah, oh, in crossings and lighting the candles, because it said that to every candle that it's lighting, um, on the other side, they have light. Tell me what it's like to be a young person in summer. What do you do besides work? It's fun. Uh, at, at least I enjoy myself. I, I can go by myself at the beach and enjoy the image. Or uh, you can go at the travel with the boat. Or uh, it's a club on the beach. It's only open in the Friday and Saturday. Anything else you can do, like a young person does here? Mm, you can go to the park. It's near the high school here. It's only one high school here. Uh, something more going at the coffee. Uh, it's not, uh, there are not more many possibilities in this city. It's a small city. All the younger people uh, left. Selina's final death was when two canals were built from 1976 to 1987 that allowed ships to go from Romania's main port, Constantia, to the Danube River without having to go through the delta. An abandoned fish factory and derelict naval yard stand witness to the last time Selina had a real economy. Its multicultural end was due to economics and globalization. But over the river, on the Ukrainian side, something very terrible happened. We don't know who sung the name Jew, which was probably sung during the Holocaust. It is in Yiddish. In part, the song goes. Because of the name Jew, my people went into the fire. Kilia is a pleasant town. The city executive committee's building looks across the main street, which ends at the Danube River. To get to the Jewish graveyard, you have to travel right to the edge of town, and then there's a bit of asking around. No sign. After a short walk through a farmer's field and past the sheep, you're there, with graves going back to at least the 16th century. And it is no jumble of weeds and bushes. The graves have been tended with loving care. I spoke to Boris Schwarzman, born in 1942 and the caretaker of the cemetery, in a coffee shop on Kilia's main street. I'm not that religious. I am 110% Jewish, but not a religious person. Jewishness means a lot to me. A lot. It is in no way bravado. It really does. I've been in the army. I sailed for 50 years. Then it was time for me to come back to the shore. I was asked to somehow preserve the history and to make sure the cemetery is in a normal condition. It's basically what I do now. It is quite important to commemorate our ancestors, especially because there are just three Jewish people left here at the moment. 
Yet there used to be around 3,000. I then asked if he is worried about the cemetery after he passes on. Of course it worries me. I don't think anyone is going to bother, sadly, anyone. I mentioned three people. One of them is 91 years old, I am 80, and the other one is 76, I think. He's far from it all. He's not interested and doesn't really care. I was asked to look after it. It was my calling. I would say who, if not me, of course I'm worried. I also asked him what Kilia was like before the war. At that point, it was thriving. There were sporting events, museums, synagogues, first and foremost. Such a small province had four synagogues on its territory. Jewish development and Judaism were supported. In June 1941, two Romanian and one German army invaded Bessarabia, which Romania, not the Third Reich, annexed as its territory. Schwarzman recounts what happened right after the invasion. The last synagogue, it seems to me, came to an end around the 50s. The central synagogue, the fourth one, was in place of the current City Executive Committee building. That is where tragic events of the Holocaust began, unfortunately. A monument is now established there. Jewish people were gathered at that synagogue. At that moment, in the beginning of the war, 2,400 Jewish people lived in Kilia. During the first couple of war days, 1,800 were taken to Bagdanovka. We can understand what happened next. Tragic destiny. Mm-hmm. Bogdanovka was a Romanian concentration camp for Jews from Bessarabia in response to an outbreak of typhus. The Romanian authorities decided to liquidate the entire camp, starting on the 21st of December, 1941. Over the next 20 days, 48,000 people were either shot or burnt alive. 200 Jews survived, labor for the cremation of bodies. Altogether, Romanian forces were responsible for the death of up to 380,000 Jews during the war. As Schwarzman put it regarding Romanian culpability. It was mainly their participation. Romanians were generally the ones in charge here, probably the same as in the other regions. Germans, the Nazis, ran and organized everything. The ones who ran out of strength followed their orders. Therefore, it wasn't all Romanians. Local population, sadly, participated in the Holocaust as well. Boris Schwarzman's grandfather was Ilya Slavinsky, one of the Soviet Union's best poets. Slavinsky's early years include fleeing the Jewish programs of 1905. During the Russian Civil War, he first fought with an anarchist army, the Black Guard, and then with the Red Army. He served as a frontline officer during the Second World War, and two of his poems in 1942 describe the aftermath of a Nazi massacre. In I Saw It, Slavinsky writes, Now relax your muscles, lower your eyelids, rise like grass over these heights. He who saw you, henceforth forever shall carry your wounds in his heart. The trench, tell about it in meter, 7,000 corpses, Jews, Slavs, No, about this one cannot with words. Fire, only with fire. Somehow, Slavinsky managed not to end up in the Gulag or be executed during Joseph Stalin's purges from the 1930s to the 1950s. Stalin's secret police, the NKVD, 
would arrest scores each night. About 14 million people were sent to the Gulag, often in Siberia, where an estimated 1.7 million died. Others were simply executed, like Isaac Babel, a Jewish writer in Odessa, the main city of Bessarabia. Schwarzman remembers the repression in the 50s and living with his grandfather in Moscow. I was 11 in 1953, before Stalin's death. In 1937, everyone was afraid because of Babel and many other people's tragedies. We lived across Tretyakovka, the Tretyakov Gallery, the Writers' Union, Lavrushinsky Lane. You can imagine what it was like when someone rang at night. Around that time, 1953, there were talks about evicting Jewish people from Moscow. Very few know about this. However, it was actually published in the press. Long story short, the matter was scrapped. Thank God, the moustache guy left and the matter dissipated. It could have been a tragedy in my subjective opinion. It is all in the history. There are facts. That was the Internationale, which was sung across the entire communist world. In the Gagus village of Kotlovina, 23 kilometers east of Rene, as the crow flies, there's a memorial to the Second World War in the center of the combined school's plaza. An estimated 27 million Soviets, civilian and military combined, died in the war. Idealized proletariat soldiers carrying guns look out onto the muddy streets and small farms. Three blocks of classrooms surround the rest of the plaza. The principal, Praskovia Dolopoli, and Sofia Zonkova, the head of the local Gagus folk group, took me to the school's museum in the basement. Photographs and handicrafts mark the history of the Gagus people in the area. Dolopoli explains. The Gagus is a Turkic nation that practices orthodoxy. There are 21 possible versions of their origin today. I believe that the Gaguzi actually descended from Aguz Turks that came from Asia and moved to the Balkan Peninsula. They settled in this area at the end of the 18th, the beginning of the 19th century. Zonkova decides to sing in Gaguz, a Turkic language. I always say that the song is about a young couple that couldn't last. They dated, they loved each other, but their parents intervened. It was not meant to be. The girl asked her loved one to be with her despite his sham marriage. She asked God to let them reunite as two doves on the other side. Marina Munchan is the director of the Regional National Cultural Center of René. She's worried about the loss of language and explains its importance. Gagu's language is one of the ones that are going extinct, unfortunately. When it comes to preserving tradition, language is key for national minorities. That is the most important goal. Language is the primary ethnic feature. There is no ethnicity without language. Tradition is kept in families, but unfortunately there is a tendency of children not speaking the language. Language is crucial when it comes to passing on the tradition. The Soviet Union tried to alter the people, transform the individual into the new Soviet person. In the German ideology, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels wrote that the proletariat is, and I quote, 
the expression of the dissolution of all classes, nationalities, etc. within present society. In the Ukrainian delta city of Ishmael, I met with Alexei Elin and Sofranos Paradisopoulos. Elin is a lecturer at the Ishmael State University of Humanities and specialist in the post-war communist period. Sofranos Paradisopoulos is the director of the Hellenic Foundation for Culture in Odessa. Paradisopoulos describes the impact of Soviet power in Odessa. In Odessa, after the Second World War, there aren't any Greeks from, from the old uh, groups of Greeks. Of Greeks. There are, uh, there are Greeks that came from uh, the Georgia, and uh, most of Greeks of the um, old uh, groups, or uh, are, uh, they are, um, they went uh, to Greece uh, back, or they moved by the Soviet, uh, by the Soviet government to other places in Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. In December 1937, Joseph Stalin launched a terror campaign against Greek communities across the Soviet Union. Up to 50,000 Greeks died. Alexei Elin describes what happened in the Delta. Well, I think that Soviet power, they don't try to make peoples of this region Russian people. They try to, to make a new people, the Soviet people, uh, the workers, uh, um, some, somebody who is Soviet people. And they try to rebuild uh, conscious of, uh, of people here. The Russian language was used in the Delta to decrease ethnic identity and promote the new Soviet person. Sergei Lozanov, the chief of Ishmael's cultural department, spoke to me about it. On the one hand, talking about the multinationality in our city, we are specifically talking about those people living in this region. Some nationalities have been here for 200, 300 years, Others came here in the 19th century. Some moved in the 20th century. In the 20th century, however, this multinationality got caught up in the USSR's oppression. Their priority was not to preserve separate nationalities, but rather to create a uniform Soviet nation, and so many ethnic groups' representatives were deprived of their right to speak in their native language. Their culture was oppressed and marginalized. The goal was to simplify the cultures to just song and dance, in order to present this diluted version of their heritage. Even to broadcast it on TV, while destroying the core memory of the generations that preserved the language for 200 or 300 years. When I spoke to Sofranas Paradisopoulos and Alexei Elin, they also spoke of the Russian language and identity. Elin describes how it affected him personally. I know Russian language and Russian culture. Well, I don't know Moldovian, so I don't think that I can say that I am Moldovian. Well, because I just don't know Moldovian language and culture. Maybe I'm uh, Ukrainian and uh, Russian only because, well, my grandfather was Russian and I'm Russian now. But my father is Moldovian because he uh, lived some part of his life in Moldovian village and he knows Moldovian tradition and uh, language and song and culture, so it's very difficult to understand that there are not only ethnic identity and civil identity. I live in Ukraine, I have Ukrainian passport, so, um, so I can say that uh, I'm Ukrainian and Russian and in less uh, I'm Moldovian. Lilia Olenek, whose ode to Bessarabia we heard earlier, is one of the last ten Jews in Rene and grew up during the Soviet period. She explains how assimilation became a coping method in the face of repression. 
что обрезали корни моего дедушки. My grandpa's family, for example. Grandma's was his second family. His mom and dad. His first family, including children and his wife. They were all shot. Someone pointed their finger at them, pointed out they were Jews, and just like that, they were taken away. That is why they were afraid and didn't want me to speak the language. Grandpa could speak both Yiddish and Hebrew. They used to switch to them so I wouldn't understand what they were saying. I used to shout that I wanted to understand as well. I could have easily grasped it as a child. They said I didn't need it, that it would cause an accent. Such things were cut off. Dad doesn't know the language either. Why, I asked, did your grandfather do that? He protected me in that way. You asked me about anti-Semitism? Some people still find it acceptable to use slurs while talking to me. Although not always directly, they are using them though. Olenek is Jewish, wears a cross and attends a Ukrainian Orthodox church. She explains. Let me tell you a joke that actually has a lot of truth to it. All ours are there already. Do you get it? Jesus, Mary. They all hang in Orthodox churches. They're all over there. I go to the right place. There is no synagogue here. There is one group who has successfully resisted change and assimilation and has kept to their strict rituals for hundreds of years. In 1666, there was a schism in the Russian Orthodox Church. Those who held on to the old church rites became the Lipovans, also called Old Believers, and had to flee Russia. Some of them came to the Delta. In Ukraine, 27 kilometers north of Selina, there's Volkova, population 8,000 or so and 70% Lipovan. Back in the 1700s, Refugee Cossacks and all believers drain the land. The canals have given the town the nickname, the Ukrainian Venice. A few communist apartment blocks bracket the western edge of town. The butchery in the small supermarket sells decent pork ribs, steak and shashlik, a type of meat skewer popular across the former Soviet Union. I visited the Lipovan St. Nicholas Church in Volkova. As I stepped in, sunlight drifted down from the windows running all along the high dome, about three stories high, and hit the floor before the sanctuary, a space in front of the iconastus, a towering wall of icons. The icons include the Mother of God, angels, Christ, and a variety of saints. Years of billowing clouds of incense have stained the gilded frames. Archpriest Nikolai Moraviov has wiry hair, square glasses, and a bushy beard that touches his frock. His church, the Virgin Mary Church in Kilia, isn't a big one. It just does the daily services for the faithful in a regular neighborhood, but has the intended grandeur. About the religion, he says, We are an Orthodox church. We profess monotheism among the Holy Trinity. The faith that came with the Christianization of Kievan Rus under Vladimir the Great from the Byzantine Empire was kept to this day. Lipovans are friendly folk and open to outsiders. At a remembrance ceremony for one of the congregation, an old lady sings as people sit down at long tables and eat. Guests, however unexpected or random, are promptly given a seat and plied with mountains of food. Nothing fancy, just honest tucker. There's plenty of wine, the old lady's gesture, eat and drink more and more, feeding strangers as part of their religious and moral codes. In Selina, Alexandra Manoli took me to a commemoration for the patron saints of Selina's Lipovan church. 
priests with long beards and shoulder-length hair, were dressed in golden robes. Women and young girls, their heads covered with scarves, stood at the back. Men and boys stood at the front of the nave, dressed in a traditional one-piece shirt with a rope tied around their waist. Old ladies crossed themselves over and over again with two fingers so that God can see them. When it was time for the procession, the congregation followed an icon out of the church. It felt like looking at a window into the past because it is the past and the present. Manoli said, My mother is a full Lipovian. She was baptized in this church. And uh, I wanted to, but uh, the years go by and I think uh, it is better I was baptized at uh, the Romanian church, not in this, because uh, they are so uh, a little bit too strict with the, the dressing and the way you style your hair or the nails. I... <laughs> they didn't see it. They didn't see it, my nails. <laughs> oh, you got beautiful long purple and yellow mm -hmm. yes, nails. Yes, 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 yes. They like uh, the simplicity in the eyes of God, if I can say like that. Nothing too special or uh, to think outside the box. <laughs> they have a strict uh, set of rules. And uh, they managed to keep it that way for years and years. I, I uh, look at this situation with uh, little respect. While the rituals and adherence to the old ways stand out, it doesn't define the religion. As my conversation with Archpriest Moraviov turned to theology, I got the sense that this wasn't the kind of usual conversation for him. He proudly showed off the church's old books. The paper is cut rough, and generations of priests and apprentice priests, who don't learn in seminaries but from an individual, have copied them. In terms of the strict rituals, he says, we understand that the ceremonial part of Christianity and orthodoxy is not the main part of the faith. The state of mind is. That is what Christ is talking about while urging to feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, and show mercy. In Apostle Paul's words, the ones who do not love thy neighbor cannot love a God they have never seen. <laughs> That was the anthem to victory, a song of Romania's Iron Guard. From its formation in 1927 up until the early part of World War II, the Iron Guard drove the rise of fascism and barbarity in the country. The ideas behind genocides and crimes against humanity, the kind of events that continue on today in places such as Myanmar and Xinjiang, don't come from nowhere. They predate the mass killings, often decades before. Romania's direct involvement in the Holocaust is no exception. Mihai Emanescu is Romania's national poet. His monuments built to him across Romania. He was on banknotes in the 1990s. In 1881, in The Jewish Problem, he wrote that the Jews have thus physically envenomed and morally corrupted our populations. As a foreign race, they have declared a mortal war upon us. His good friend and contemporary, Yuan Slavich, wrote in his 1878 work, Debt and Credit, The Jewish Question, that... The solution that remains for us is, at a signal, to close the borders, to annihilate them, to throw them into the Danube right up to the very last of them, so that nothing remain of their seed. Boris Schwarzman can see the past and the present. If we look at the current situation in the world, 
Europe, America, Ukraine, unfortunately. I feel there's a tendency of fascism revival. It exists much to our regret. That worries me and every normal person as well. However, I repeat, it is growing lately, sadly. Much to my regret here in Ukraine especially, I'm not talking about anti-Semitism progressing here in Ukraine. I'm talking about attempts of fascism revival. That is where great danger lies. And how, I asked him, should people resist the rising tide of fascism? They are obliged to fight. Nothing and no one is forgotten. The 20th century was not kind to the Danube Delta and its people. Far, far too much was lost. But there is hope. A rebirth is happening. Mikhail Nesterenko of the NGO Rewilding Ukraine has a vision. We need to really restore the nature, bring back the animals, because very often in our landscapes, we see beautiful landscapes, but we don't see any large animals in those landscapes. We see what we would call them, these like beautiful theaters. We reflooded the areas, we changed the, the animals, we bring back the large herbivores who are the architects of the landscape. They create the habitats, they, they open up the vegetation, the reed beds, the, the whole landscape becomes mosaic and they're important for many of the fish, for many of the insects that, that depend on the large herbivores and the birds eat the insects and the larger birds eat the insects, the smaller birds. And this is how the whole life, what we call tropical cascade works. So this is really amazing to see how fast the nature comes back in these areas. So there's a great, I think, future for rewilding in the Danube Delta. You can only but wish him and his team well. In Odessa, there's another vision being realized. Since 1992, a vibrant Jewish Orthodox community has developed. Beryl Kapukin, the press officer for the community, explains. Before the revolution, there were 100 synagogues here in Odessa, and after it, they were all destroyed. There was just one left. Yet it was also destroyed due to its poor condition in 1992. And then the community was given this building, this synagogue which was rebuilt and reconstructed with the help of people from Odessa, from all around the world. So they were all helping the synagogue. The community runs a school, an orphanage and a welfare system. Odessa now has kosher restaurants. There's a Jewish university. It is a far cry from the 1960s when the KGB used arrests or threats of arrest on trumped-up charges such as sexual harassment or drugs to prevent a religious revival. I asked Kopukin about the size of the community. Less than we would like. There are less people because most of the Jewish people don't participate in the community. They don't follow the traditions. So the main goal of the community is to distribute, to shed light on those traditions so they are not forgotten. When tourists come to Odessa and they ask, so how many Jewish people live in Odessa right now? And the answer is 30,000, which seems a lot to tourists, but to us and to the community, it is very few people because at some point there were 200,000. So it's just a fraction of what it was like before. Much has been lost in the Delta, and the loss is not just for the Delta's people, it is for all of us. With every culture that crumbles and every language that disappears, part of humanity's soul goes too. 
The weight of history and current trends suggests that the Delta will continue to be a less culturally diverse place. But thankfully, this is not a future altogether foretold. In their own ways, everybody interviewed for this podcast is trying to hold the line, working to keep the Delta's unique cultural mix from being entombed in a history book. They know it will be hard. Boris Akerovich Schwarzman passed away three months after being interviewed. Another link to the past departed. This podcast is dedicated to him. Song Animami Honiji. Production Tristan Taylor and Natalie Bertram. Post production Burton Reed. Voiceover Fuiswa Kaboni, Natalie Bertrams, and Mark Bodie Brower. Translation Sofia Novitska. This podcast was made possible with kind funding from the National Geographic Society. Thank you for listening. Baby, I'm a